And so he was moved with compassion, but then he went and he made a bold request to the king. The king might provide the resources for him to go back and to restore the kingdom. We talked about how God may move him from this, this brokenness to actually being the one who had boots on the ground. And he, we looked at we may be the same. That as we pray, as broken in compassion for people, for the lost, for the nations, that we may be the answer to that prayer that God wants to mobilize and leverage out for His kingdom. We talked last week, though, about how when we're doing a kingdom work, opposition will come. We talked about this first wave of opposition that Nehemiah was faced, and that was this external opposition. We looked at how many times you're walking in a fallen and broken world. And you're attempting to live faithfully for God. And opposition is going to come. In this life, you will have troubles. And we must be ready on guard to face that opposition when they come our way. Then we get to chapter 5. And we're going to see what I believe might quite possibly be the greatest enemy that we may face. And that enemy may possibly come from within. Often in our pursuit of Christ, we live with the belief that if we can block out the external oppositions and create this, this cocoon where we have blocked out all the external threats around us, then we are free and we are safe from danger. The people of Israel saw themselves in the same position. The wall was already halfway built. The people of Israel probably believed that they were now safe from opposition because they were somewhat secure again. But it turns out that there was great danger and opposition that was coming for them from within. And so this morning, I feel as if God has a very specific and practical word for us as his people, as we consider how we interact and relate to each other while we're on this mission here. As the body of Christ, people that are, 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 are objects of the fall, that we are broken people, and we're going to default often to flesh, how do we walk in this mission together? How do we persevere faithfully? the will of God. So we focus quite a bit here in our gatherings on the effects of the gospel on our life. We're saying about it this morning. That through Jesus, God has made right our vertical relationship with him. That through Jesus, we can gladly and boldly say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven. We no longer walk in shame and fear because God was good and gracious and he sought us out while we were dead in our trespasses. He brought us to life. But despite the fact that he has righted the vertical relationship that we have with him, we still have issues often when it comes to our horizontal relationships. That we see that this is fully reconciled through Christ perfectly, but yet in our horizontal relationships with each other, we often see brokenness and fracture that still exist. I want to ask you a question that you can respond with by raising up your hands. How many of you in the last 12 months have had a falling out with someone? Yeah. About 30 honest people. So, <laughs> you know what we find is that when we are right in our vertical relationships, yet we still often are walking unfaithfully in our horizontal relationships. So how are we to address that? I'm glad you asked because Nehemiah has a word this morning for us on how the body of Christ how we are to navigate our horizontal relationships with each other. Nehemiah faced this in a very real way, and in a way that could have been detrimental to the rebuilding work that God was doing through the people. Now, spoiler alert to the story. The wall that Nehemiah is working on is going to be rebuilt. I know it's terrible. It's tell someone how a movie ends. Not that guy this morning. 
in your city dying to know what happens, you can relax. The wall is going to be rebuilt. We know this. Nehemiah knew it because he knew of God's faithfulness and promises. The glory of God and his word is going to be restored among his people. The will of God for the people of Israel is going to happen. And God is going to be faithful to his people and he's going to accomplish his purposes. And for us today, we know the end to the story in our life. Jesus is going to return one day. He's going to return not to rebuild a physical wall, but to renew the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, the writer says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We know that Jesus will return. He will reestablish the fulfillment of his kingdom, and we know that he will be victorious. And so in Nehemiah, I think God wants to teach us more than just how to complete a task. I believe that he wants us to glean some insight into how are the people of God to persevere and do his will while dealing with opposition that may occur both externally and internally. Just like our story in Nehemiah, when Satan could not afford God's plan externally, we're going to see today that the shift would turn internally. The evil one knew that if he could get God's people at odds with each other, that he could attack from within. And we need to eat the same morning this morning. At the heart of the church is the call of duty. Paul writes in the church at, to the church at Ephesus, a familiar passage, calling the church to unity in Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and bond of peace. Because there is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul would write that in a letter to the church in Ephesus. He would say, remember the bond of unity. But before Paul would write in this letter to the church in Ephesus, he would write to a very young church in Ephesus in the book of Acts. And in chapter 20, he warns them of what would come one day. As he had to remind them in Ephesus of the bond of unity that must take place, he told them as an early church, a young church planted in Acts chapter 20, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's telling the leadership there to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. He said it because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He said there's going to be danger come from without. You've got to be on guard for that. And then he says in verse 30, but from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He says, therefore, be alert. He said that opposition would come from the church in the form of wolves from the outside, but also from within your own selves, attempts would be made to lead the disciples of Jesus away from the truth. So he warned them that opposition will occur, and we see it externally. We've witnessed it globally as we have seen the eternal effects of evil on God's work. But yet we're going to see this morning that, that there, will be, there will be attempts that will come from the end that we must be careful. And we can look around and say, well, everything's great. We just go, everybody's loving on each other. And that's great. But he said, be careful. Be careful as the church. Obviously, this may come 
from within. So we ended chapter 4 last week with this rousing description of how Nehemiah calls the people back to the wall. The external opposition had come, and Nehemiah said, you know what? You can try. We're going to just just work with a hammer in one hand, a sword in the other. We'll work all night long. We're going to be faithful to this work. He rallies the people together. They were were excited, and they were ready to build the wall. It's amazing how Nehemiah organizes the people. They responded by stepping up and doing what he had called them to do. They were zealous in their effort. But yet, in the midst of their zeal, they were experiencing a real hardship. They were unable to work the land. This is a very large agricultural region. They were unable to work the land to produce crops and provide for their families because they were working on the wall. This is probably the straw that broke the camel's back if the wall worked. It lasted 52 days, but this was kind of the, the, the breaking point. They, were, they, were, they couldn't provide for their families. They were working for, for free on the wall, so they couldn't earn money or pay taxes. Maintain the land. There's a famine now that has occurred. So the people of God are being very real and faithful, but yet they're experiencing hardships. There's a food shortage. Trade was cut off. They couldn't get from without. Bad situation. So in the middle of this incredible work that God was calling them to, there's a difficult side to the story that is often not highlighted in the alignment. And what we're about to see is that the worst thing is not the neighboring countries. It's not the famines. But the worst thing that is happening here is great disunity and oppression that arose from within the people of God. Let's read about the problem. First of all, Nehemiah's problem. Let's look at that. Thank you so much. Let's look at this in Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, beginning uh, the first one. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money from the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been to be slaves, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So look what is happening here. This is not a neighboring city coming in and destroying what was taking place in Jerusalem. It says that there was an outcry from the Jews against the Jews. And the outcry was coming from its own people. There is, this is an infraction that deals with the way that God's people are to relate to each other. The concentrated work on the wall meant that the fields had gone unworked and unkept. Most likely the situation was at work. Such a bad situation that even the wives in the culture that would not have been said a whole lot are out there crying out as well. It's a huge outcry. So second, the fields are unworked. The people had to find a way to buy food. They had to eat. So they were mortgaging their fields and their vineyards and homes to their own people with interest so that they could get grain to eat. And though the work of the fields had not been done, now the king 
Even despite the fact that they were able to generate this income, the king had not suspended his tax on the produce of the fields. So they were having to mortgage these fields, even sell their children into death slavery. This is the people of God who have been called back to be unified together, who are now hurting each other by taking their fields, by taking their very children as slaves. And the horrifying truth in the story is that it's not the neighboring nations, it's not Tobiah, the Samaritan, but it's their own people. So what we see is the Jewish people of prominence and affluence are capitalizing on a very unfortunate situation as the people of God are working on the wall. They're not focused on how their financial dealings and their greediness will impact the ability of the poor to produce food, to care for their families. They weren't concerned about that. They were concerned about making money from them. I want you to check this out. Rebuilding the wall. These are the people in Jerusalem. These are the people in Jerusalem who have been laboring day and night on the wall. They have been following Nehemiah's leadership and his vision casting. They followed God's plan for Israel. And yet following after God has proven very costly for them. Their faithfulness to God has led to disaster in their lives. Though in the Western church, nestled here in the South, this has not been our experience. Yet for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, this has been the absolute case. We've read these past few weeks of the persecution and martyrdom of many. Globally, persecution is occurring in major ways among our brothers and sisters for following after the will of God. Much like the people of Israel working on the wall, they were being faithful. Yet in their faithfulness, they were experiencing great distress. Our prayer as we pause for just a moment in that particular description in Nehemiah is that we as the body of Christ will continue grow in a way where we are more and more and more mindful of this truth. And that God will grow our faith where we would be prepared as well as the day comes for us that we would stand firm as they did in their faith. But yet I'm afraid for many of us, like the well-off Jews in Nehemiah, most days are sadly too self-absorbed with their own lives and situations. That we don't even have the emotional or mental energy to think about anyone else, to pray for anyone else other than what those prophets promise. So Nehemiah is in a very difficult situation, navigating the waters between the faithful obedience of people and the disunity that can arise from within. But Nehemiah has a solution. Go me in verse 6. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry these words. So I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And so I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. The people were silent. They could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. 
So he said, let us abandon this exacting of entries. Return to them this very day the fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And so I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and say, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all these assemblies said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So Nehemiah here is extremely angry at this situation. He is livid. This is, this is a very righteous anger. A righteous type of anger that glorifies God. God gets God angry. Jesus got angry. But before acting out in his anger, he is, I mean, he is ready to roll. But before acting out in his anger, Nehemiah took counsel with himself. Took counsel with himself. This is a literal idea here is that the heart was ruled. He got control of himself. And so instead of acting out in his anger, Nehemiah addresses their situation by accusing them of violating the law of Moses. He doesn't go out of his anger and say, what in the world are you thinking? He goes back and gets control of his heart, and then he brings them back to the law of Moses and says, what you're doing by exactly interest is wrong. He handles the division in the body by bringing their attention back to God's law, to a proper fear of God, to a concern for God's reputation among the nation. So in essence, he deals they were acting out. And they respond. They respond graciously. This was common practice for the people of Israel. In their culture, they would have understood the forgiveness of debt. In Leviticus 25, we read about the practice of the year of Jubilee among the people of Israel, where every, every 50 years, during that 50th year, anyone who had mortgaged their land would get the land back. Slaves would be granted their freedom. This was excellent news to the poor, and it was sobering and reminding news to the affluent. But why was the law set up to do this? Well, in a nutshell, it was to remind God's people of God's holiness, to restore hope, and, 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 and prevent a, a, hope, a hope from the, in the midst of the poverty. They would be, those who were poor and oppressed would experience hope. But it would ultimately serve as a reminder and a foreshadowing of the hope of the deliverance of the Messiah who would come. So the people understood this generous nature in the law. They knew that they were not to extract interest from their people. So Nehemiah ends this abuse from within. He restores and reinstates a proper view of the understanding of the law of God. When we end this particular passage in verse 14, Nehemiah goes through and he he reminds them of his nature, Nehemiah, who, who was, uh, he steps into this situation where there's this established practice of the governor of the land of Judah for economic and culinary privileges that he would be provided for as the governor. But Nehemiah breaks this pattern. You can read that several, we don't have time for that this morning. But there, these, these former governors, in essence, would lay these heavy burdens on the And hiding the load of oppression on the people. And they were entitled to this, but not Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not forced to act in this way as it was his full right by law to require it. But yet he knew something was better than money and food. It's a love for people and a faith in God. So Nehemiah lives. He shows us the, the, the issue. He shows the solution. 
And as he lives it out by example, I encourage you to read back through 14 through 19. He shows them how to navigate the situation by the way that he modeled in his own behavior. So unresolved conflict is eternal. This could have been detrimental to the people in the world. Yet Nehemiah understood and identified the danger and unresolved internal conflict. And you and I, this morning, I think have a word from Nehemiah how we can deal with internal conflict that goes unresolved. And I think, first of all, we have to see the danger that lies in that. First of all, unresolved internal conflict distracts our attention from the mission. You see what happens here? The people were going about business. They had lost a proper view of the mission that God had put his people on. People of God were having trouble focusing on the mission at hand because they were dealing with this internal conflict and oppression. You and I are on a mission together as the body of Christ. But yet, when we find ourselves losing the focus of our purpose and shifting our focus to our own agendas and our own desires and our own wishes, then we run the risk of losing focus on the mission we have been called to. And allowing internal conflict to sneak into our relationships. It's a very simple, simplistic concept. And at the core of the issue is self. It's self. It's who is at the center. Whose mission, whose desire, whose wishes, whose wants are supreme. And when we elevate self over the mission, then we will allow an unresolved conflict we must see Nehemiah. This was, he called it what was taking place to deal with this. This was an issue that he knew could be detrimental. But not only is unresolved conflict from within, not only does it take our eyes off the mission, but secondly, it damages our witness to the outside world. It damages our witness. You look back at verse 9, you know, he, he says, Nehemiah tells us, walk you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. In essence, do you really want to continue to do this and allow people to make fun of God's people? His covenant people? Are we going to act like this to the outside world because they're afraid? In Nehemiah, the nations were actually taunting the people of God. Let me tell you, whenever the church begins to act just like the world, guess who the first people are to notice? The world. Oftentimes, the world knows that the way in which the church conducts itself to each other is counterpoint to the culture. This is not a surprise. From the consummation of the mission of God when Jesus came to the earth, or from the, the, the tangible expression of Jesus came to the earth, it has been counterpoint. That's nothing new. And so for us to treat and act just like the world, for us to do that in the face, it, 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 it damages our witness to the world. Would you hear these scriptures? I think one of the most profound statements for the witness that we give to the outside world is in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by your love, if you have love for one another. There are people in our culture who thrive off of tearing people down. They elevate people and the second that the people that they have elevated make a false step, they just tear them to pieces. And if we're not careful, that can seep into church. We 
We often find ourselves in our church culture offering little grace, despite the fact that we have been given an enormous amount of grace. We have a tendency to kick people when they are down, to shoot our own wounded, instead of seeking for their healing. We get frustrated easily. We can often hijack the mission of God into a personal agenda to be satisfied the way that we want. And so this calling to show the world about the kingdom through our love for each other sometimes expresses, expresses itself in flashes, but it's often inconsistent among God's people. God says this should not be the case. Another passage of scripture, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15 says this, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many come defiled. We must be careful that we see that when we allow internal conflict to continue, it damages our witness to the outside world. And supremely, we see that dishonors God's name. That was Nehemiah's primary concern. It wasn't supremely that their people were financially oppressed, although that was an issue. It wasn't supremely about that. It was that God's name was being dishonored. Oftentimes, I feel as if conflict goes unresolved because we are afraid of confrontation. Nehemiah was. Now, was he confrontational in a sinful way? No. He took counsel with himself. He ruled his heart before happening. So we have to see from this that there is something to confrontation for the good of the church and the glory of God. You realize that as you face confrontation within, that it's not supremely about you. It's not supremely about me. It's not supremely about the situation. It is supremely about God. It's about the fear of God. It's about the reputation of God. So if God's desire for his people is that we will live as a distinct people in our culture, then for us to avoid confrontation and for us to allow unresolved disunity to happen and unresolved conflict to persist is to model an inaccurate picture of the honor of God to the world. Tim Keller says this, says Christians should be a dynamic counterpart. It is not enough for us simply to live as individuals in the city. We must live as a particular kind of community. Jesus told his disciples they were a city on a hill that showed God's glory to the world. So Christians are called to be an alternate city within every earthly city, an alternate human culture within every human culture. For what primary purpose? For the honor of God's name. That is why we desire to see brokenness restored. Not just so that life is safe. Not just so that the world is more pleasant. But so that the honor of God is restored. So Nehemiah teaches us this this morning. But not only does he give a broad spectrum of how we handle oppression from within, I think we see some very practical things that you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, walking through a broken world, Knowing that there are unresolved conflicts that if it's not happening will arise from within, I think Nehemiah gives us some practical action steps that I want us to, to, to see from his response 
being in verse 6. That's first thoughts. We are looking to see how we resolve conflict with women. I think first of all, we see that we don't act out of emotion. We don't act out of emotion. Nehemiah was angry. He was consumed. This was this, the word for this for anger that he experienced there would have been a consuming anger. This would have been a very holy anger, but a consuming anger. But yet he ruled his heart. He took counsel with himself. It's so easy to instantly react out of pure and raw emotion. And to compound the problem by sinning in the midst of Nehemiah was very angry. He got in trouble with emotions. Why is this important? It's important because in many cases, we can take a step back and realize that maybe we weren't completely innocent in the situation. Maybe we have a part to play in the issue. Just maybe we were partners for him. Now that may not always be the case. We're often wronged by others, but we still are called to take time to compose ourselves, to not act out of emotion. Jesus was talking about this in Matthew chapter 7, when he would say, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the law that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the law in your own eye? He says, You can't. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In our emotions, the first reaction we want to make often is to lash out. It's to lash out and defend ourselves. To begin our defense case of why we are in the right and the other person is in the wrong. But from my understanding of God's word, the first thing that we want to do is to go introspectively. See where I have sinned. See where I might have made a mistake before acting. Nehemiah did this. I think it's a practical step. But secondly, just as Nehemiah, we, we deal directly with the person. These are very practical action steps. We deal directly with the person. We see Nehemiah took care of this. He didn't, he didn't not issue some big decree. He called the people together and said, God, this is bad. What you're doing is not right. He didn't, he didn't join the outcry and say, you're right, you're a bunch of scumbags. No, he says, you know what? I see the problem. I'm angry. I, I, I hear you. But I've got, got control of myself. He says, you know what? Let's deal directly with the situation. Let's deal directly with the person. We live in a culture that avoids the, that, that plays the avoidance game. And this is not good. Some of you in this room, maybe you're doing all you can to avoid someone who is wrong. That's kind of what we do. Avoid whenever an issue comes up. Nehemiah shows us that the way to deal with internal conflict is to deal directly with the person. You may say, but they hurt me. And I know they did. And I'm fully aware that that may be the case. There is a sinful tendency in humanity. The question we must ask ourselves are we actively attempting to reconcile? We see this in Matthew 18. Jesus talks about how to deal with sin. Brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. He goes on to talk about how you deal with that if it does not happen. But the first step is to deal with the person. You see this in Nehemiah. 
You may say, you don't know the person. They're an idiot. And you may be right. I know a ton of idiots. But the way to resolve the problem is not through a social media rant. It is not through a, a just this weird, like, just talking around the issue but never dealing with the core of the problem. If you have sinned against a group of people that address everyone involved, if someone has wronged you, go to the person. This is healthy. This is the way Nehemiah modeled. This is the way Jesus said that his people should respond to each other. And it's ultimately so that restoration can occur. You realize that internal conflict we take head on, not to try to prove someone wrong and make them feel like you, they, you know, that you have overcome them. No, it's so that there's a mutual reconciliation so that God is glorified on them. So the body of Christ, we are, we are responding to this is counterflow. This is not the way the world deals with conflict. This is the way Jesus said my people should handle conflict. You see a third thing from Nehemiah. And that is that we denounce our pride by remembering what's at stake. Let's take our eyes for a moment off of the issue of hand. Nehemiah said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Look what his focus was. He's the talking of God's people. He's the dishonor of God's name. So the glory of God allows us to lay aside our pride. It allows us to lay aside our issues. It allows us to, 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 to lay aside our anger and elevate the glory of God, remembering what's at stake, the honor of his name. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, live peaceably with all. This is God's word to his people. So for us to dig in and say, I don't care what God says, I'm not forgiving anybody. Is to shake our fist at God and pretend that we know more than Him. And this will always cause a fracture in the rhythm of fellowship, of fellowship and relationships with each other. We also see in Nehemiah that we are to demonstrate our desire through repentance. So not only do we do we do we see the problem, and not only do we see the greater good, but we, we demonstrate our desire for reconciliation through repentance. Verse 11 through 13, Nehemiah tells them to return the fields, return the olive orchards, their houses, their percentage of money, grain, and wine, and oil that he been exacting from them. And they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. They recognize their misstep. Three calls to repent to each other. As the body of Christ. When we are in conflict with each other, we are called to forgive. In James 5 16, James says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is worth. So we ask ourselves, what happens if we ask for forgiveness? And they say, I just don't think I can give it to you. I believe that we see in Scripture that we just be blessed in and made home. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You've repented to God. You've repented to those that you have harmed. There is nothing more that you can do but pray and allow the Spirit to continue to transform.
our experience. We repent. It's one thing to just be angry and flash, talk it out. It's another to say, I forgive you. Some of you in this room need to offer forgiveness to someone. It is a cancer that is consuming you. You're unable to see clearly the glory of God because you're distracted by this, this anger and lack of forgiveness in your heart. You need to return to ask for forgiveness. Then finally, we see what Nehemiah ends with, as does most of our passages. And that is that you dedicate reconciliation to the glory of God. This is just not so that your relationships are better. Nehemiah was not doing this supremely to raise the standard of the economic conditions of the city. He did not do this supremely so that he could get the wall built. He wasn't saying, come on guys, let's just finish this project and kill each other inside the wall. No. Nehemiah says here in verse 13, Verse 13 says, the second part, he says, and all this simply said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. We reconciled to each other out of an understanding of the gospel of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Of all times. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How often do we find ourselves as a, the, the central character in the parable that Jesus said? We've been given, forgiven such a great debt, we turn around and find those who are indebted to us, and we haven't thrown in jail to God. So this passage, as Paul writes again to the church of Ephesus, he says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, he writes, bury with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must. Christ, but we're to not only hold his argument, we're to 